Welcome to our Spider-Man Far From Home spoiler review and analysis podcast. As the title suggests, this cast will be filled with spoilers from the newest Spider-Man movie. So don't listen if you don't want to know anything about the movie or have not yet seen Far From Home. If you have seen it, then by all means, listen. Then go see it again and re-listen. Rinse, wash, repeat until your hair is nice and shiny and full of Marvel Cinematic Bounce. I'm Stan, and with me as always is Albert Marsh. So, Albert. Yeah. How's your Peter tingle? (laughs) (laughs) So, okay, so you've seen the movie, I've seen the movie, what'd you think? I really enjoyed it. I thought it was one of the better Spider-Man movies they've done so far. It, did you like it? Did you like it better or worse than Spider-Man Spider-Verse? I, I still think Spider-Verse is the best Spider-Man movie. This could be tied for second with the second Sam Raimi movie. Are you still holding Doc Ock Spider-Man 2 in high regard there? Yeah. A lot of people are holding on to that. I I just kind of let that one go after. To me, it goes it goes to not so much the plot of that movie, but like when you watch that second spot, even now when you watch that second Spider Man movie, that's what Spider Man should look like on the screen. The first movie had this stuff into it, but the but the angles and the camera work and the way they shot action scenes and the way they shot stuff like when Doc Ock's arms went crazy in the hospital, like that's how you should shoot spider-man and, and no no movie even spider-verse has done that better than that but as a whole spider-verse is a better movie okay i see what you're getting at there mostly i take away from spider-man 2 is uh Manoya's performance as doc ock yeah. i i think he sold that movie i think he carried that movie on his back it's a good movie it's an entertaining movie and at the time yeah it was probably next to in my opinion next to the 1978 superman it was probably the best comic book movie out there. But once Iron Man came along, my, my opinion on that began to change. Yeah. Like you said, there there's problems with the script, but Alfred Manoia's portrayal of Doc Ock was just outstanding. Tobey Maguire was the best Spider-Man to play Spider-Man up until he didn't play Spider-Man anymore. Yeah. I liked Toby. Toby was fine in the role because largely, hey, look, we've got Spider-Man on the silver screen. But uh, the moment Andrew Garfield came along in Amazing Spider-Man, I thought he's a far better Spider-Man. He runs his mouth. He's a little lighter. He, he's For me, I liked Andrew Garfield better than I liked Tobey Maguire. So you're saying that your number one Spider-Man movie is probably Spider-Verse? I'd still did put I get that, that wrong? I would still put Spider-Verse the top one. Okay, the top one. And the second one would be... Uh, This one, and we'll just say a tie between probably this one and Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 2. Okay, all right, excellent. There's there's a lot of stuff going into this that if you haven't seen the previous Marvel movies, you're, you're going to really you're doing yourself a disservice by not having watched them. I've seen people complain left and right, like they do nothing in Endgame to explain to a new viewer what's come before this. And I've also seen a meme online, and I agree with it wholeheartedly. It said, well, they do nothing in this 22-chapter book to explain what happened in the previous 21 chapters to somebody that just starts at chapter 22. And I agree with this. If you're... if if you're going to enjoy it uh, just for what it is, movie per movie, then that's fine. But don't expect them to stop in the middle of Endgame or Far From Home and explain to you the story so far. Well, they, they mentioned like this was sort of like the last phase whatever movie. Yeah. And to me, it's it's the last one by simply saying, here's sort of the fallout from people coming back five years later from Endgame. And that's, this, sort, of, that's sort of it. 
Yeah, this is the bookend to everything that started with Iron Man. I mean, there's there's one character in the movie that blinked in and out of existence, and all all his classmates and are all the same age. He is still mm-hmm. his teachers. His teachers are all still there. There's just there's the one character that's in the class that was like, hey, this was so and so's younger brother so many years ago, and that was that. Yeah, and and let's get on with the story. They're calling it the blip in this movie, right? Correct. Yeah, the blip. Aunt May had uh, conveniently blipped out at the same time as everybody else. And I, I did think they handled it very nicely by showing that scene in the gym where people started to disappear, but then you immediately see them come back and like half of the band members are reforming in the gym during a basketball game and the ball hits the tuba player. Yeah. I thought that was very nicely done. That took away from the that took away from what was possibly an emotional low and just brought it right back up to keep pace with. The or bit. like the, the teacher's wife left him, <laughs> faked her death, faked her blip, and then he's like, "I had a funeral for that woman." So yeah, that I mean, that's a that's a very realistic. I mean, it's put in there for comedic effect, but that is a very realistic thing to expect during an event like that where it to occur in reality. Hey, here's the perfect opportunity. I can go ahead and fake my death since half the world's uh, population has disappeared and nobody's going to question it. No, so, you'd just be whatever, you know, who, who, what's, what's one person out of the other from everyone else that's gone missing. Yeah. That would have been 3.5 billion or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, if their Earth's population was anything like ours, I think we're just over 7 billion currently. There's humor to it, and they handled it well, but they also, you know, there's a little bit of practicality going on there and what they're, what they're saying went down. This, of course, is laden with spoilers, if you couldn't already tell by us giving a few things away. What do you think of the Happy Hogan, May Parker romance? I mean, I didn't, I didn't mind it. I thought it didn't seem overly forced or anything. It was just a nice, it was just something little, little something that was there. One thing I noticed about this movie, and let me go ahead and I asked you at the beginning what you thought of it, where you rated it. I still think Spider-Verse is the best Spider-Man movie out. I think next to Spider-Verse, this and uh, the predecessor to this, Spider-Man Homecoming, I think those two tie for me right under Spider-Verse. I, I really do like those two. And then I'd go Spider-Man 2, and then the rest we could you'd talk about at a later date. But I really, really, really liked the feel and the flow of this movie and the way they put it all together. But one thing that I felt they were trying to sell to me over and over again, and they do this heavy-handedly, is they are definitely setting Peter up to be the cornerstone of the next phase of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. They are definitely putting him in Robert Downey Jr.'s place. Well, they're betting, you know, Downey, at some point in time, these actors were going to be too old to some extent to do this. Yeah. And with with Spider-Man, you've got it 20 plus years out of this actor if you want it. Oh, yeah. So, you know, you don't have like a, well, in 10 years, this person's going to be this old. You know, how do we keep doing this? Where 20 years from now, Peter Parker's technically in his 30s. Or, you know, the actor himself, maybe, I don't know how old he is, what, 40 or something? He was he was 20. He turned 21 during the filming of Homecoming. I think he's like around 23 years old now. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, he's got, he's got plenty of time. Seems to fit this perfectly and be very happy to come back to this over and over again. Samuel Jackson is... Uh, Se- in his 70s at this point? Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, I know he was born in 1948. So yeah, yeah, he's he's easily in his 70s at the moment, and he's still coming back to do it. But his role is not overly physically demanding in most of these. Yeah. So, and also he is a huge comic book fan and nerd. And I, I get the feeling that they can recast Nick Fury when they pry that role from his cold, dead hands. Yeah, he, it's, for him, it's just the thing they can always, like he can always, beyond what, what some light jogging here and there, like he, he mostly just sort of stands around and says Nick Fury stuff and that's it. Yeah, he does it real well though. And it works. And this is, there's a little something out of sync with him in this entire movie. And I think he played it that way on purpose. Let me ask you this, as a longtime comic book reader and just a comic book aficionado that you are, and to a lesser extent that I am, were there any real surprises in this movie for you? Did at any point, did you say, ah, oh, wow, I didn't see that coming? Not really. The scroll thing was, was surprising, but not like a big deal. Yeah. I did like, and it, it, it goes to back to this goes to Mysterio's character. Mm-hmm. I like that Mysterio wasn't like just one guy doing all this. Yeah, I like that he had like a crew of people working with him, and like he didn't even really wear the wear an actual suit too much. He was mostly when it was revealed, revealed you know what it, he was just trying to scam. Yeah, his suit you know, was mostly get, like he was he was he was just off to the side wearing a mocap suit, giving directions to everyone on what to do. Exactly. Exactly. His suit was all motion capture for the most part. He had his costume that he was going to wear when he met with the queen, that sort of thing. And that was, that was, that was cute. That was funny anecdotes. And the nice thing about it was everybody involved in this had a grudge against Tony Stark and they utilized a handful of these characters that have actually shown up in the movies. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, you know, they, they inserted Jake Gyllenhaal into a scene from Captain America Civil War, but they did that seamlessly. Yeah, and, like, yeah, the way they, they did Mysterio and his crew, like, it all, it worked out real good, and all it all made sense, and it was a neat way to do that, too. Yeah, disgruntled Stark employees. It worked really well. I thought they did, I thought that was a wonderful little stroke of genius there. And one of my favorite, one of my favorite all-time Marvel scenes, and definitely my one of my favorite Iron Man scenes, is... Of course, when uh, Stain in the uh, first movie, Jeff Bridges turns around to that scientist who's telling him we can't create an arc reactor that small. And he yells at him. He says, Tony Stark did it with scrap in a cave. And he said, well, I'm not Tony Stark. And he's first lackey to Mysterio in this. Yeah, That was very nicely. They put a lot of thought into this. And just to go in further to how much thought they put in, and I've only seen it once, I noticed as some of the cars were rushing to a scene, I think it was the fire monster scene, you see a car tag, and it has ASM, and I think it had 91967, or it had two numbers in front of it. But basically, I I caught that car tag, and the reason I caught that car tag, and you'll know this, is because when we do the comic book orders, Spider-Man is listed as ASM. Amazing Spider-Man is listed as ASM. And I thought, oh, well, that's not a coincidence. So I'm fairly certain that uh, that car tag denoted some character's first appearance or something along those lines. I wasn't able to remember it, and I wasn't sitting there taking notes when I saw it. But they have put a lot of Easter eggs in there for people who are mega fans. I mean, huge, huge fans. And they're getting 
I don't know if you'd say worse and worse, but they're paying more and more homage and attention to that sort of thing. I mean, slapping a uh, slapping a car tag in with a reference to possibly some character's first appearance or a key issue that relates to this movie. That's was it that, a year or something? Because I yeah, remember it was, uh, it I was AS, the ASM part. It was ASM and it was a date and it was a European date because the uh, there was two numbers in front of the number nine. And I managed to remember September, and I think it was either 67 or 69. I looked it up. Mysterio first appeared in Amazing Spider-Man number 13, and I looked up the date on that, and it was in June 1964. I'm fairly certain the last numbers I saw was 67. That was, uh, they were fighting the fire elemental. Is there, isn't there a molten man? I'm looking up something right here, and apparently there's more than one license plate thing in this movie. Okay, well, you see, that that occurred to me that that could be a running gag, and I just happened to notice it right there. Well, I noticed the ASMM one, but the, but there was like another tag that uh, Molten Man, which is sort of in this movie, I guess. Like yeah. one of them his, is his first appearance. Yeah. And, I, yeah. and, I, and I'm sure the ASM one's something too, but I don't. Well, there was there was a crate in the background of one of the scenes. I noticed it had 1970, no, not 19. It had the number 78 on it. And the nearest thing I could think of that related to Spider-Man in 78 was possibly those awful made-for-TV movies. Remember those? Yeah. Where, where he largely, whenever he battled somebody, he'd battle ninjas on rooftops to give it the feeling that they're up high and so on and so forth. That's the only thing I can think of that the 78 may have been referencing because that was a pretty slap you in the face number. And I, I caught that. I caught the ASM on the tag. And so you looked it up and you said there's more than one tag Easter egg in there, car tag Easter egg. Yeah. Okay. All right. So that's definitely an ongoing thing. Let me ask you this, Albert. Do you appreciate those sorts of Easter eggs? Do you go back? Do you personally go back to these things and look them up like this or or go through and and say, oh, this is in reference to Avengers number 17 or, or along I mean, those- it, the, usually the way I do it, uh, if, if I notice them, I, if I know if I notice them, I notice them. If I don't, I usually don't think it's that big of a deal for this as far as like continually rewatching it just to do that. Yeah, because within within a few days of a movie coming comes out, there's going to be a, a an article somewhere that says, "Hey, here's all this stuff." Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm, That's I'm usually certain, what I wait for. I'm certain right now there's about 458 YouTube videos being put together talking about the car tags and and everything that we possibly overlooked in this movie. Now, I did catch where they referenced uh, Hydro Man being created, and somebody said, "Don't believe everything you read on BuzzFeed." Yeah. Yeah, now I thought that was a nice little... Now that, that's easy. That's right there in front of my face. Okay, we've said the character's name. We referenced his comic book origin. And now we've explained that away by saying it's a false BuzzFeed article. The scroll thing you're saying caught you off guard. Now you and I had talked about this several months back when the trailers first started coming out. And I kept saying that's not Nick Fury. Of course, I thought it was going to be the chameleon. Yeah. See, yeah, I just couldn't get it through my head that Nick Nick Fury would shoot Ned in the neck with the dart, whether or not it was a tranquilizing dart. I I knew that had to be the chameleon and march us closer to the Sinister Six that we've talked about for every Spider-Man movie since the first Sam Raimi movie hit the theaters. And it turns out, no, it wasn't. But that was not Nick Fury. That was the scroll from Captain Marvel. So what's the deal with that? <laughs> I, 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 some, I mean, at some point in time, we're going to get some, some type of big scroll arc. 
where they're actually bad guys. I don't know if this is maybe sort of setting up a little bit that, hey, they're sort of here and there doing stuff. It seems like it'd be sort of pointless to just treat it as like a throwaway gag of some sorts. Well, let's go ahead and set this up for for people. In the movie, at the very last scene, after all the credits have rolled, you see Nick Fury and Maria Hill in the car, and uh, the phone's ringing, and Maria Hill answers it. And you notice Nick Fury playing with his his eye patch, and you hear a familiar, if you've seen Captain Marvel, you hear this familiar sound. And then both Maria Hill and Nick Fury turn into the husband and wife scrolls from Captain Marvel. The Nick Fury scroll, I forget his name, Talos? Was that his name? Something like that. Talos, the scroll from the Captain Marvel movie, and his wife are sitting in for or posing as Nick Fury and Maria Hill. And this was kind of a little offbeat. And then you see the other end of the phone call, and it's Nick Fury. And the further reveal is Nick Fury is apparently on a scroll home ship in out in the outer reaches of space. And then before it gives you any real information other than that, it kind of cuts. Uh, well, it doesn't kind of cut. It directly cuts. And my big question here is, why is he out there? Well, I assume it'd be whatever whatever they do with Captain Marvel 2 on that end. You think it's just a Captain Marvel 2 thing? You don't think Nick Fury's heard rumors of a planet eater? Well, I mean, that could be it. But I, don't, I mean, what's Nick Fury going to do out in the middle of space if there is one? Well, I don't think Nick Fury necessarily is flying out there to confront the planet eater. I think he's doing what Nick Fury does, and that's gather information. I mean, I could see where after the Thanos situation that if Nick Fury is hearing rumors of a planet eater out there, he's not going to sit idly by this time. He's going to be a great deal more proactive to go out and get as much information as he can on any possible threat coming Earth's way because they just barely got out of uh, the Thanos situation this last time around. Yes. Yeah. So you think that's a possibility or you uh, just think I mean, it could be a possibility. Like if, I mean, if I was going to do Galactus, I wouldn't be in any rush to do it. I don't think they're necessarily in any rush to do it. I think that's just part of the setup saying, all right, we've closed this. We've closed the Infinity War chapter out. This was the last bit of it. And here we go. And I also think that goes back to the first end credit scene that comes up mid credit level. And that, of course, is the return of a Spider-Man movie favorite, J.K. Simmons as J. Jonah Jameson. Yeah, I'm glad they got him back for that role. He's that sort of... Yeah, I, uh, I just wish they had put him in the same makeup. <laughs> yeah, the, the flat the, the flat talk would have been good. But, but more at this time, he's, he's so he's so much older than what he was, it probably just wouldn't look, probably wouldn't even look good, so... Yeah, yeah. Did you notice that he was kind of set up as what's that guy that that insane guy that thinks frogs are gay? Well, he ain't, he ain't, he ain't quite Alex Ross. Not uh, uh, Alex. Alex Ross. <laughs> I mean, Alex Ross could be that way. We don't know. He's not. He's not quite Alex Jonesian. He he was to me. He was more of like almost more of like a yeah, like no. back or someone like that compared to Alex Jones. Yeah, screaming screaming into the microphone, randomly or Bill, hating. Or Bill O'Reilly, you know, things on that end of the spectrum. Yeah, I just noticed that the Bugle logo and that desk and that kind of design that they showed Jonah at, that just kind of all look reminiscent of all the uh, of all the little clips I've ever seen on him. The, on all the, the InfoWars stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's it, that's it. That's what I was looking for, InfoWars. But uh, that, was, that was very nicely done. Mysterio had 
had edited together things Peter said out of context, made him look responsible for all the death and destruction in Europe, and then went one step further and revealed Spider-Man's identity. That's a, a good way to do that. If you're caught and busted, you might as well throw, if you're a villain and you got busted, you might as well throw the hero underneath the butt on the bus as much as you can. Well, he certainly did a fine job of that. And I mean, this just leaves you right there with that hanger, that mid-credit scene hanger. The guy that Mysterio had running the, the computer, you know, the guy sort of hit yeah. sort of in charge. Like, it shows him, like, take a little USB stick and run off with it. Yeah, he, he does there's something a, to the computer, closes it up, and takes the USB stick. There's, yeah. there's, a, there's a real, there's easy outs here for that stuff, so. Well, yeah, I don't doubt that. I wasn't questioning at all how did he have the time to do it. It's Mysterio. I, if I bought the rest of this, I bought that he could have put that together before. Uh, spoiler alert, he dies at the end of it. And, I mean, of course, he's Mysterio, so does he die? Or do you, well, that's a good question. Do you think he's dead? He looked pretty dead. Based on the stuff that Mysterio did in the movie, they could they could write it out. But I, I don't. There's nothing set up for there to him to keep him himself to sort of keep going. The Stark Systems computer that is the MacGuffin to the entire movie here, Edith. Uh, even in death, I'm the hero that uh, Tony Stark designed and incorporated into his sunglasses that you always saw, saw him wearing. And he passes on to Peter, giving <laughs> scroll Nick Fury sums this up nicely. You know, he turns over the most complicated defense offense system on the face of the planet to a 16 year old kid. Yeah. You know, it, it, well, yeah, but he's not just a 16 year old kid. Well, I mean, Tony flew him to Europe to get in a fist fight with Cap and was just sort of okay with it. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's like Happy sums it up all at the end. You know, I've seen him question everything that he's ever done, but he never questioned this. You know, turning it over to Peter. And, of course, Mysterio gains control by playing on Peter's emotions and insecurities and horniness. He, uh, you know, this is just not something you want in the hands of Mysterio because he immediately puts it to use, trying to set himself up as the new Iron Man, thinking that it's all just about presentation. It's all about show. I thought those were acceptable motives for this villain, especially in this day and age. Yeah. To me, it goes, one of the things that's about them saying, hey, Mysterio's this big hero and everything, like, they're, everyone's going to know who he is, where he came from. Well, eventually. Eventually. I mean, clearly, and again, this is not Nick Fury. This is a scroll pretending to be Nick Fury, apparently has a favor to Nick Fury, who is star hopping at the moment through different galaxies. Eventually, Somebody would have figured it out. Unless, unless, because I was thinking about this as well. Peter taking his mask off on the bridge after in the aftermath when he's talking to MJ. Peter takes a lot of unnecessary risks, especially in that scene with his identity. Because, dear God, you're, you're in London, England, and they are covered in uh, closed circuit cams yeah. everywhere. But I thought about that and I thought, okay, well, if this, you know, if this is Nick Fury and he does have control of the Stark accesses, all he's got to do is edit himself out. Just like it was illustrated with the uh, picture of him in his underwear with uh, the uh, uh, secret agent earlier that, that his high school adversary got of him to try to keep MJ interested in him and not in Peter. You know, he just, had it removed from his cell phone via the Stark system. Yeah. So I, I'm willing to give a lot of leeway in the, how did Nick Fury not recognize you immediately as a Stark employee and so on? So he covered his tracks. That's how. I mean, these are really smart individuals. You're talking about Stark Enterprise's best 
uh, you know, not the not the very best. Clearly, the very best is dead, as is reiterated throughout this movie over and over again. But these are some top performers at Stark Enterprises with personality flaws. They're going to know to wipe themselves from the cameras and the database. And so I don't think that Happy Hogan in charge of Stark security is exactly the right person to have necessarily in charge of all of Stark security, especially given that his password to his iPhone is password. Like I go back to the fact that, you know, they aired the, the footage of Mysterio and like Mysterio has this overly complicated, I'm from a different universe origin and stuff. You know, someone's going to watch that footage and be like, well, that's, that's Quentin that I used to work with. And or I, I went to, or I went to MIT with, yeah, I went to high school with this guy. You know, that's who that person is. It, it could be like that. He, he was also a stickler for covering up loose ends. And I think we're just willing to accept that. Yeah, he did go back. He did, he did erase his, uh, Stark Industries ID card. And maybe his name wasn't Quentin Beck then. Maybe it is. We'll just have to, you know, we'll just have to take it on faith that they covered their tracks in this situation. Clearly, they were operating without any knowledge of, and again, it's not the real Nick Fury, it's a scroll Nick Fury. And I think this is how they got away with a lot in the movie, is by saying at the end of this, not the real Nick Fury. Don't you? Yeah, I guess. I mean, I, I didn't really overthink, overthink any of that. Well, I mean, it's been a full two hours since you've seen the movie, Albert. Yeah. <laughs> Why have you not come? You knew we were doing this podcast. I advertised this podcast two weeks ago. Well, I was like, well, that's a really good movie. And I just sort of went on about my day. <laughs> Clearly, you need to go in with a notebook <laughs> and start taking notes. And All right, let's talk a little bit about MJ. Zendaya has MJ. What do you think of her? I think she does a really good job. And I really like the character in the movie. I think she's I think she's above and beyond. I think she's outstanding. I like this MJ. It's not really meant to be Mary Jane Watson, uh, is it? I, I know she said at the end of the last movie, my friends call me MJ, but they're not care- calling her last name Watson, are they? No, they've still just got her listed as MJ on I. Yeah, I think it's just MJ. Which is which is perfect. I really am glad that movie-wise we've broken away from Mary Jane Watson and Gwen, and we've introduced a different character that does not have a standard heroine-in-distress personality to her. She's stout, she's conniving, she's smart, conniving in a good way. She's smart, she's weird, and she thinks things through for herself, and she's not afraid to defend herself or take that extra step to go out of the way to try to help herself or the people that she cares about out of the situation. She doesn't come across as Kristen Dunst's Mary Jane, who was constantly screaming or in a state of depression. And I liked Emma Thompson as Gwen, but we really didn't get enough of her in that. I mean, we got her in The Amazing Spider-Man and then in The Amazing Spider-Man 2, which we would all like to kind of push to the side because that was a goofy movie. Uh, She died before you could go any further with it. But this MJ, this version of MJ, this is fresh. This is something unique to the movie verse, just like most of Peter Parker's schoolmates, classmates, peers. And I think that's needed. Well, they just just modernized it. It's not sort of stuck in the, you would say that the the characters and their roles are stuck in like, like a cheesy, like, well, not a cheesy, but like your standard teenage 1980s movie. Yeah. I mean that their roles started in the '60s, but ended in the '80s. Their roles are sort of very, are still reflected in those type of movies. Yeah, it's a case of 
evolve or die with these characters. They've got to be something we can recognize now, today, or they're just going to risk becoming irrelevant. All right, now having said that, we've done a little more research on the car tags, and yeah, the car tags are prevalent throughout it. May, when she pulls up to pick up Peter at the airport when they return from London, her car tag is AMF15 with uh, 62, which is, of course, Amazing Fantasy number 15, which was released in 1962. And... The car that Nick Fury uses to, well, actually, it's Scroll Nick Fury. But now, in this scene, when he picks Peter up at the station in Germany, his car tag is MTU something or other, but that's got to be Marvel team up. And I would assume it references Spider-Man teaming up with Nick Fury. But at the very end, in the end credit scene, where we see that Nick Fury and Maria Hill have been Talos the Scroll and his wife, his car tag says HMU, and I couldn't catch the rest of it because it, my attention span is not that great, but it was HMU, and I kept trying to place the title with HMU, History of the Marvel Universe, do you think? Or am I overlooking something? I can't think of what else it would be outside of that. I mean, yeah, I, I'll look into it like we said earlier. I'm sure there's thousands of YouTube vloggers putting together conspiracy theories over the car tags and everything else. So I'll look into it and see if we can find that out. A couple of other things I wanted to point out about it is, did you notice that when Scroll Fury thought all the danger was over and was walking with Scroll Maria Hill, he was talking about Kree sleeper cells in different locations around the Earth being top secret. That was just like one line, and if you're not paying attention, you'd completely miss it. Yeah, I don't, I don't think I caught that. Yeah, he did. He did. He he point blank said, uh, referenced Kree sleeper cells around the planet being top secret classified information. Now, I, I can't imagine what they're trying to set us up for there, but do you have any clues? Do you have any guesses? There's something I'm missing. I, I went over what I knew about Marvel and uh, Captain Marvel. And I'm not... The Kree scroll War, maybe? Yeah, I guess they could do that. They'd, they'd have to change it up a little bit, though. Yeah, they'd have to change this up significantly. And if that is what they're getting at, then Nick Fury may not be out there looking for Galactus. This may be, uh, this may be in reference to those sleeper cells around the world, and this could be set up for the Kree scroll War. I got a phone call earlier from somebody asking, is is this preamble to secret invasion? I don't think we're going to go the route of secret invasion in the cinematic universe. I really don't. I don't think that would work as well in the storytelling theatrically as it did in comics. What do you think? I mean, they'll probably use that name, but it'll be like, like when they used Age of Ultron, they just used the name and that was it. Yeah. You know, that, Age of Ultron movie is nothing like that book. No, nothing at all. But I could see them using the name Secret Invasion to build up to the Kree Scroll War the same way we built up to like Civil War. I think that'd be a pretty good I think that would be a pretty good concept. And then here comes Galactus, since we're already out there dealing with the rest of the galaxy. Yeah. And that gives you time to get Doom and the Fantastic Four in place and hire Keanu as the Silver Surfer, dude. And now, and I'm also going to, I'm also going to just throw a couple of things out there. I know you don't think as deeply. I know you just go to the movies to enjoy yourself. And I'm here to tell you that is wrong, Albert. That's not why you go to the movies. Ugh. Why you go to the movies is to sit there and think through these diehard theories and, and what the real meaning is and what they're trying to tell us. So I'm just going to throw this out there to you. I was just kind of wondering this. 
Brad Davis, the romantic nemesis for Peter Parker's affection for Mary Jane, or MJ in this movie, he survived the snap. They had mentioned earlier, like you said, that, oh, he was just this little kid with nosebleeds, and now he's grown up, and all the girls are after him, and blah, blah, blah. Brad Davis went from the character over the course of this movie went from being seeming like yeah, just a fairly nice guy who was interested in MJ to quickly becoming a jerk. You know, the scene where he takes a picture of Peter in his underwear with the uh, spy, the shield agent that had brought him his Spider-Man, his black Spider-Man costume. And then he just, he just very rapidly turns into more and more of a jackass every time we see him. My question is this, while I don't think that the intent was necessarily there in the writing or direction of the film. Do you think this would be indicative of the survivors of Thanos's first snap being more hardened and objective, having to live through those five years with half the population missing than those who just blipped out and then back in? I mean, I don't know. I don't, the, I mean, the way they, the way they treated the snap in this one, they didn't really seem to put much, thought into anything like how everyone's dealing with it. It was just like, hey, everyone's back. We had to redo our semester. But that was all from the point of view of those who had been blipped out and then back in. We didn't really get much of a point of view other than, say, Brad Davis and the teacher whose wife faked you know, her death. We didn't get a point of view of the survivors of the first snap. Just Brad Davis's characterization in it. And Happy Hogan, but Happy doesn't really count because, you know, he's after May and just yeah. happy to have her back. Uh, happy is happy to have May back. But so you don't, you think I'm reading way too much into Yeah, that. I think you're way, I think you're putting more thought into it than they have. Oh, well then wait till we get to the end where I ask what the overall pitch of this movie is. Do you take this, and this is something that the writers could have intended, that the director could have kind of meant overall do you do you take this in any way as a commentary on the all flash no substance world of tech and the internet the social media with mysterio representing those aspects and a disgruntled populace that easily buys into whatever they're presented with not looking any deeper than what their screens show them i mean they could do that I think what the the issue is is that you have like you have older people writing a movie with teenagers, yeah. And, and the only and the only thing they can think of is like, well, everyone records everything with their cell phones and live streams it, so that's sort of what we need to do. Well, it's the it's that core group of teenagers there that are in the know. It's MJ that picks up on things not being has they're presented to her. Yeah. It's it's the weird character. It's the one that thinks outside of the box, the one that believes that the Eiffel Tower is there to turn people into a zombie army or whatever it was she said. It, it's her that picks up on this that Mysterio and what's what the evidence of her eyes are is not what actually is. Or would it be what the evidence of her eyes is is not actually what the evidence of her eyes are. Anyway, I, I could see where this was just some sort of a message that was kind of casually thought through, especially with that sequence showing up with J. Jonah Jameson and uh, them making Peter Parker out to have been the bad guy and to have caused all this. 
Yeah, I think anything like that, they did it a little bit in this move, but anything like that's mostly, that's going to be JJ, that'll be Jamison's arc on that end. What got me thinking all that was when Mary Jane, shoot, I keep calling her Mary Jane, she's only listed as MJ. When MJ quotes Orwell about objective truth fading out of the world, lies will pass into history, and she's using that to turn it around on the character of Brad Davis, who was growing more and more disgruntled and could easily become a bad guy. I mean, it wouldn't take much of a story arc to push him over in there. I I just was wondering if you took away any any meaning or any commentary from the movie, other than it's a Spider-Man movie and we enjoyed it. <laughs> no, I haven't taken any, any deeper meaning yet in this movie. <laughs> you see, this is why we need to go see these things together. Yeah. So I can interrupt you in the middle of the film. <laughs> okay, I've got one more thing. Did you catch what was going on with Flash through the film? What are you talking about? Okay, Flash Thompson in the movie. In the first movie, he's just he he's just a jerk. He's a rich jerk. He's constantly hammering Parker, but he idolizes Spider-Man. Well, there's the bit about his mom. Okay, all right. You heard that at the end where he asked uh, he asked the chauffeur that had showed up at the airport when they returned from Europe and is holding a sign with the name Thompson on it. You know, he asked, she couldn't come get me, and the chauffeur shakes his head no. But there was another little bit to it, and this goes back to all the detail and the work that they're putting in these in these films. When Peter puts on the Stark glasses that allows him to see what everybody's doing on their cell phone, uh, in the bus, on the way to Prague, if you look real quick at Flash's text, Flash is texting his mom and dad, and it reads something to uh, something to the effect of, I haven't heard from either of you in weeks. Please just, you know, text me back. Let me know what's going on. It, it's really it's really kind of a sad little twist there. I know it helps to put his obsession with Spider-Man and his confession that he's vlogging in order to get attention or in order to make people like him. But it, it really, given the text, given the vlogging statement, and given what happens at the end with the chauffeur and all, that's that's a tremendously sad arc. Yeah, they may they may play that up later, but I, I don't I don't know on that that one. Like I said, I think they they had to give do something for him to make him more likable. Yeah. So it, so having so just doing a parent thing is an easy way to do that because we, he didn't have. We never saw his parents in the first one. No, and I don't ever recall seeing Flash's parents in the early comics. I do recall that his father abused him in later comics, or we find out that his father abused him during childhood, things along those lines. But uh, this this Flash, just like MJ, is different. This is a different take on Flash. I mean, he's still a jerk, but he's, even in the first one, you still had a little sympathy toward him due to the way he would react to Spider-Man. It was just, he really does not like Peter Parker. And it's easier to take this time around because Peter just kind of brushes him off. The first one, this one. So I, I just thought that was worth bringing up that yeah. they they put a little bit of, well, they put a lot of effort into the entire movie, but they were paying attention to his story arc. And that in turn led me to think, are they paying attention to Brad Davis's story arc? Or is this just done to have the, you know, romantic nemesis for Peter? I wonder if, if maybe Brad Davis, the Brad Davis arc was originally meant for Flash, and they just split it off, because the Brad Davis arc, with the exception of the him recording people in the bathrooms, the way he acts, he acts a, like his character traits remind me a lot of the old comic book Flash, compared to movie Flash is. 
Well, he does. Flash Flash Thompson's treatment of Peter in Homecoming and in Far From Home is not as much bullying as it is just verbally assaulting him. You know, just going out of his way to be a jerk, but not shoving him downstairs or anything that, you know, used to happen in the comic books. And Brad Davis, Brad's character, wanted to cause, well, not maybe physical harm, but wanted to cause Peter some harm. He was willing to more than throw Peter under the bus to get him into major trouble and such. And I can't remember if they said, one of the characters had suggested that Peter was a male escort, and I don't remember if they attributed that to Brad or one of the other girls. MJ had said, well, you're either a male escort or you're Spider-Man, so which yeah. is it? So <laughs> I thought that was a nice line. Okay, well, any any thoughts? Anything to wrap up here? Anything we yeah. haven't covered? We covered about all of it. I just thought it was a really great movie. They did a very, very good job with it. Okay, on a scale of one to ten? Uh, probably like eight. Probably an eight. Yeah, I think that's what I'm going to go with too. I think it's a I think it's an eight. It's my second favorite Spider-Man next to Spider-Verse. Uh, and on a par with Homecoming. I think you kind of have to take both Homecoming and this together. Uh, we will have our normal podcast hopefully posted Thursday morning, even though Thursday is the 4th of July, and some comic reviews and all. What do you got coming up? I, I hear some interesting rumors about Walking Dead. Yeah, I guess we'll know, know for certain tomorrow if it sets up like a new volume or anything like that. Yeah, this will be this will be interesting to find out. I, I applaud... If the rumors of Walking Dead are true, I applaud the gumption and the wherewithal of Robert Kirkman to go ahead and spring it like this. And also at the same time, if the rumors are true, I, I really wish Bleeding Cool would mind their own business. <laughs> well, well, me and you may have different takes on, on this Walking Dead stuff, too. Oh, well, I look forward to that. Save it for tomorrow, then. All right, Albert, this was our spoilerific Spider-Man Far From Home podcast say good night to the people good night to the people <laughs> thanks albert see you see ya. once more thank you for listening if you enjoyed it please give us a five star rating it really does help us out if you didn't enjoy it i blame albert we should have our regularly scheduled weekly comic cast up sometime on thursday and again a special character study podcast coming soon so stay tuned for that we cannot tell you how much we appreciate you listening and supporting us on this. Thank you all so very much, and we will talk to you soon.